Yeah, Vaughn? Episode number 41. Number 41, T, that's your old basketball number. We didn't reference this in episode 31, but number 41, I know, is a, it's an important number for us. Yes, yes. Uh, back in the glory days of high school basketball, uh, I wore 41 and, and you wore 31. The fact that we are going to be talking about an album that came out while you were wearing number 41, to me, seems pretty ironic, don't you think? <laughs> hey, oh, coming out hot today, Nub. I like it. A little too ironic. But I really do think. Now, when, how long ago did you Sorry, play? I just had, I, I've been listening to the album all week and like, there are two or three unbelievably catchy things on this album that just <laughs> two or three right I, well there's catchy and then there's just like literally walk around all day not you know attempting to not sing it but singing it and that is one of them you know just that <laughs> little bit in that song we'll get to it at what point did you plan the that intro the, the 41 high school you know the whole tie tying everything together like that i mean did you come up with that like Three days ago, four days ago, more like 25 seconds ago. I, I, you know, I don't think about what episode number it is. The only reason I I remembered it properly, as you well know, I have a hard time remembering our episode numbers is that episode 40, right? Well, exactly. Episode 40 was the Q and a. Yes. So I can remember that. And then it's like, Oh, 41. And then number 41, I was thinking about making a Dave Matthews reference, because I know that's, you know, that's a famous Dave Matthews song, number 41, but that's a total beer song at a, at a yeah. Dave show, in my opinion, because 41 usually goes on for about 41 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not one of your favorites. Time to go refuel at that point. So then it was like, no, I'm not going to go that reference. I'm going to go with more personal basketball number reference in this thinking this, this uh, synthesizing all went on in a matter of a few seconds. But um, looking forward to talking about the jagged one, if you will. I think it's one that everybody, you know, we've done episodes before where in some cases, uh, albums or artists that people never really heard before. I think we can pretty much guarantee that of all facets of our listenership that everyone has heard this one. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's going to give us an interesting theme. You know, we'll, we'll kind of focus on this album in a different way when we get to the theme, but I got to say one of the inspiring ideas behind choosing this album was two twins in an album has pretty much been a sausage fest, you know, since we started it. <laughs> if you look at our albums that we've chosen, I mean, it, it's, it's been the sausage party of all sausage parties, right? Like it, we've, we've really been very male dominated in, in what we've chosen. And that speaks to, I think, some of our respective tastes, but I, it was important to me. Rarely do we choose albums for any specific reason. I did want to 
represent a female artist on the podcast because we we're 41 episodes in and we honestly haven't done that yet. So um, why not choose one of the biggest selling female albums of all time, right? Indeed. Yeah. This is uh this one did okay. This one, this one shifted a few units. So T with that, uh, you know, let's just briefly touch on the theme of tonight's show and that the theme is going to be aging. We'll talk about aging and how well things age in terms of jagged little pill, but let's talk a little bit about our aging. Do we have to (laughs) see how are you aging? You know, how would you say, you know, you've aged since the year 1995, which by the way, is 26 years ago, if you can believe it, but talk about aging a little bit. What do you think? What, what comes to mind when you think about your own uh, aging? Well, you know, you listen, you, you kind of wish you could go back and, and know what you know now, like the great, uh, who the hell sang that song? Rod Stewart, right? Um, so there's that element, right? Where you kind of like, shoot, if I could have just said this or that, or known this or that, or you know, had the level of game that I now have with the ladies back then, <laughs> you know, that, that type of thing. Um, you know, so you kind of, that all comes into play, but obviously that's impossible. So I'm just talking about tea, you know, like you, I think you're aging quite gracefully myself. I mean, I think you're, I think you look like a million dollars and you got a nice beard. You had never been able to have a beard back in 1995. I can barely have one now, but um, <laughs> I mean, T is aging very well. It's no secret that I've aged magnificently and, and, and gracefully most, most say that's what other people There's say. No question. Not, not yeah. me. That's what most others say. And, and I'm uh, probably about three times as handsome as I was back. You're a very handsome man back in the you know mid nineties. So now this isn't what I say. This is what others have, have said about me. So I'm just really just the messenger, but yeah, I think I've, I think it's no secret that I've aged uh, almost miraculously well. Um, no question. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you, you really, uh, you look fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to get into aging and look at this 26 year old album. Boy, are we old. In a minute, but let's see if there's any aging aspects to what we've been listening to as we take the show round and round. Let's do it. See three albums that you have been digging. What do you got? Uh, I've got the uh, Trail of Dead, as they're called, but it's Ooh, obviously nice. the... Uh, the full name is And You Will Know Us by The Trail of Dead. Uh, one of my favorite bands, Nubs. I know you've followed them for many years. This is uh, their most recent album, which was their 10th record, The Godless Void. It's it's outstanding. I, I think it's actually their best one. I was really, really... Do you, was, you, you put it on top of I, I do. I mean, they're all so different. It's hard to... They're another great... I didn't mention them last week when we talked about shuffle bands. They're a pretty good shuffle band. I should have mentioned them. You know, because because their catalog really is diverse. They've been around a long time, right? So, um, but yeah, that that most recent album, their tenth record, is one that's been, uh, you know, playing for me this last uh, this last week, and uh, it's a real beauty. If you haven't checked out that band or you haven't checked out that record, the Godless Void, you know, do it. We'll I'm glad to hear that because it, uh, of the last three or four albums, it would not top the list. I still love Dow of the Dead. And I love nine, 
but I do like the new album. I, I think it's really solid. And I'm glad to hear that you hold that up uh, near the top of their catalog. That's really good. Well, it's like two years old, so it's not new. But yeah, it's certainly... It feels new though for some yeah, reason. Yeah, exactly. I think actually, uh, I, I know this came out, maybe it was a few months before the uh, pandemic. And uh, I think they were going to go on a tour and didn't, you know, so um, one of those bands you hope maybe uh, comes around again. But yeah, that's a beauty. And then the second is something slightly different. It's uh, old Leonard Skinner doing Give Me Back My Bullets. So I, during the Pantera episode, I, I mentioned these guys because I felt like they had similar work ethics and kind of in a way, a similar attitude that really came through in their music. Obviously, with these guys being more deep South and Pantera being more deep Texas. Right. But uh, but it got me thinking uh, I need to go get into one of the Skinner albums. And I, I chose Give Me Back My Bullets, which is awesome. Thirdly, uh, we're going to go with uh, Angels and Airwaves, a band that I've mentioned on here a few times in their record, I Empire. So that's what's round and round for me, Nub. What is round and round for ya? Good stuff as always, T. I've got the new Chevelle, a band that you don't understand in, <laughs> in the Q&A episode. Told did, me you, did you do that on purpose because I dissed them last week? or what? No, no. It's because the album came out earlier. Well, I came out early last month and I finally got my vinyl copy of it and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. So no, this is not intentional by any means, but you, they, they truly are one of my favorite bands. I mean, when you think about in both of our collections, who are bands that you have every single album from Chevelle is one of those bands. And I've seen them live a few times and I, I, I love this band. I, I think you might too. I don't know. You could give them another shot, but anyway, I will, uh, I, I, you know, they're, they're again, like we talked about also with Kate Bush, you know, I think it was during the same answer. We were uh, the same question we were answering. Uh, there's got to be something there that that I need to dig in and figure out. So I'll so. tell you this: you dig in on silly fools, I'll dig in on Chevelle. We'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Well, you got to go to a show too. I think that's a key part of Chevelle. But anyway, uh, Neuritis is the new album, and it's it's like a concept album. It's really really good. They're actually down to just two members, which is the two brothers. Very very good stuff there. Um, also been listening to the first album by Universe Zero, which is uh, rather obscure kind of prog band, really acclaimed, really important to those that are in the prog circles. But the first album, I think technically it's 1313, but it was also self-titled depending on what country you bought it in. But 1977 effort, really good stuff. Very King Crimson influenced, uh, outstanding stuff from Universe Zero. And then for Dream Theater, I, I've been like going through this Dream Theater phase and I would say Awake, uh, the 1994 album, the follow-up to Images and Words would be the album that I'm digging most of late, but I've kind of have this, had this dream theater rediscovery thing going on. I wouldn't say rediscover. I've always been into them, but uh, awake is an album that I continue to love just top to bottom. It's an exceptional work. So that's what is round and round for me T. All right. Jagged little pill time. Let's see how things have aged as we get into jagged little pill with the nerdy deeds done dirt cheap. Let's do it. You want some dirt? All right, T. Jagged Little Pill was released June 13th of 1995, which means we were both 15 years old. A lot of people think this is Alanis Morissette's debut. And it's funny, I just realized it's the first time we've said the artist's name, Alanis Morissette. We, this album is so famous that you hear Jagged Little Pill, you know exactly who it is. <laughs> but it was Alanis Morissette, and as we mentioned, the Canadian vocalist. But um, this was not her first album. 
And a lot of people think it was, it was, you know, people assume it was a debut. This was actually the third studio album from Alanis. It was recorded, you know, during the previous months. Obviously, we will talk a lot about Glenn Ballard as, you know, producer is almost an understatement for what Glenn Ballard really meant to this album and meant to Alanis Morissette's career. But it was produced by Glenn Ballard. It came out of Maverick Records. And the album had a very long life when you look at the singles. You know, it started with, of course, the debut single, You Ought to Know, which was released in 1995. Hand in My Pocket, Ironic, You Learn, Head Over Feet. And all I really want was actually the last single, even though it's the opening track. I mean, you really talk about a year plus in terms of how long this album lived in terms of charts and success. Thinking about charts and success, I mean, you, you really can't say enough about it. It's on so many lists in terms of the greatest albums of all time. It hit number one in multiple countries, of course, in the US, in the UK, in Alanis's native Canada, but many other countries as well. And in terms of sales, I could go through all the figures, but in the US, it was 16 times platinum T. 16 times that will never happen again. Wow. Now that I can guarantee you. I can't give a lot of guarantees in this world. But I can guarantee you that no album will ever go 16 times platinum again, but this did. Yeah, and 33 million copies worldwide. So, I mean, that's the second biggest selling album by a female artist. What was number one, Nub? Go! The no number Googling. One, no the Googling. The number one selling album by a female artist. I'm, I'm not Googling. My guess, Shania Twain, come on over. I don't know if that's true or not. Oh, that's correct. Is it, oh, is it really? Oh, wow. I, yeah. Okay, that would, that would have been my guess. The only other guess I would have had would have been Probably a Madonna album. Maybe I would have guessed like, I don't know, like a Virgin or one of the early Madonna albums. But little questionable that you knew the album title "Come On Over" by Shania. But that, that we'll just put that aside. I, I don't think you lived through the '90s without knowing that <laughs> album title. You, you and I spent a lot of time in record shops, and if you don't know that title, then you weren't looking very hard during that era. I mean, and dude, look at anyone's CD collection or anyone's CD books or whatever at the time. Everyone had that. So look, I'm not proud of that. I know the, the name of that album. Although I will say, and you might too, I do like that song. Um, oh, what's that Shania Twain? Still the one. I, I do oh, like that song. Sure, yeah, the the yeah. live unplugged version of it, especially. I really like that. Yeah, that was on that. That was on that record. Interesting comparisons between the two, because obviously you had uh, artists that were very appealing but producers and composers that were very important to the process. And both Canadian, right? Isn't that right? Uh, uh, Shania, yeah. Yeah. Both Shania Twain and uh, Alanis are Canadian. And obviously Shania had the influence of a guy named Mutt Lang who became her husband, then her non-husband. Uh, and uh, you mentioned Glenn Ballard helping Alanis. So a lot of comparisons there. That's a great call T. you know, coming in tonight, I did not think we would talk about Shania Twain to that level, but here we are. Well, there we go. So I appreciate that. Well, you're welcome. You know, looking at the artists who contributed to this, a couple observations. Number one, it's all about Glenn Ballard. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but there, there's a, there's a person that's not on the list of people who played on Jagged Little Pill. That's really important to point out. And that person is Taylor Hawkins. Now Taylor Hawkins, the drummer of Foo Fighters became synonymous with Alanis Morissette and without him being part of her band on the Jagged Little Pill tour, which you and I both saw, the dude probably doesn't end up in Foo Fighters, but he did not play on this record. And a lot of people might assume that he did. He did not. And he didn't even play on the album that came out afterwards. Supposed infatuation, former junkie, whatever the hell it's called. 
he was simply her live drummer. He got some notoriety from that. And then Dave Grohl came along and hired him, but he did not play on the album. It's mostly Alanis Morissette on vocals and Glenn Ballard doing a variety of things. And there's a couple guest musicians that we'll get into as we go track by track. But for the most part, you're, you're looking at a few session things here and there, but this album was composed and visioned and essentially played by two people. And that is Alanis Morissette and Glenn Ballard. I think when you look at the construction of this piece, you really have to think about two like-minded people literally sitting shoulder to shoulder for months composing. And there's a lot of albums you can look at in, in music history of sort of singers where they really didn't have a lot of say in the music and the artistic process. That is not the case here. Alanis and Glenn really just comprised this duo that seemed to have this creative spurt together. And these songs were composed together. And Alanis deserves a lot of credit for the music. And Glenn Ballard deserves a lot of credit for the melodies. And you don't have one without the other. But let's talk a little bit about Glenn Ballard. You know, he's a record producer that seemed to find quite the muse with Alanis Morissette. And the chemistry between them is pretty legendary. Both will attest to the fact that they just seem to totally be on the same page from the time they started working together. And he really almost saved her career, if you think about it. You know, I mean, she was sort of this pop singer leading up to Jagged Little Pill and pretty directionless and, and I don't think was being very authentic to herself. And he brought all of these songs and all of these feelings and ideas out of her as they worked together. And so the album is a true collaboration. It's got her name on it and she was the star, but you got to admit to that none of this happens without his influence and, and his ability to bring out the best in her. Oh God. Yeah. Hugely important partnership. And uh, again, one that, you know, and, and Alanis has, done a great job, I think, of showing that gratitude. You know, she's, she's someone who's very introspective and reflective on her career. And even at the time, as, as a younger artist, she was kind of saying, hey, I owe this guy pretty much everything. And so, hey, you know, it's a great example of collaboration and a great example that sometimes we can't do it on our own. We need to find somebody else to bring the best out of us. And Glenn Ballard certainly did that with Alanis Morissette. So those are the nerdy deets on Jagged Little Pill. And T, I'm interested to hear your story because we all sort of have an Alanis story, right? All of us 90s kids. And I want to hear yours as we get into the wondrous stories. T, what is your jagged little story? (laughs) Most of my uh, stories are jagged. Uh, I'm not sure about little, but uh, I would say that like most other red blooded American males in the nineties, um, I was first introduced to jagged little pill by a girlfriend. <laughs> I think the first time, I mean, obviously we all heard you ought to know on the radio or on MTV, but the first time I really heard the record beyond that was in my early high school girlfriend's car because she was a year older than me and could drive which was always a plus and she's playing this album and it was the first time i heard any songs beyond you ought to know it was before ironic was a single because i remember it was the first time i heard ironic and many other songs and yeah yeah i mean you could just tell you were hearing something really unique i mean 
she paved the way for so many artists, not just in the 90s, but beyond that have come along and in many ways have sort of imitated her or certainly followed in the path that she created. But at the time, this was pretty unique. It was pretty unique to hear a female artist, uh, you know, kind of with the lyrical content and the emotion that she had. Um, and, and obviously you ought to know led that and, and clearly there, you know, there are some moments in that song that are pretty, uh, um, striking when you first hear them, at least in 1996, when you first heard them from a female artist. So really influential. Uh, and you knew that right away, you knew that you were hearing something that had a production edge that was unique, a composition edge that was unique and a voice. I mean, Alanis's voice is magnificent and unlike any other in a lot of ways, right? You know, she was rugged, you know, she was Canadian. She was not the LA primped up, you know, um, the music may have been heavily produced, but the image wasn't, you know, she was pretty raw and that was welcomed. You know, that went really nicely with kind of where things were at, at the time and really paved the way for a lot of, uh, artists that would follow her. So, uh, so that's how I kind of got introduced to the record initially. Now we saw, I've seen Alanis Morissette twice and the first time was, um, on this tour, as you mentioned, Taylor Hawkins was on drums. She came out with like the long shorts, camo shorts on and the, and the boots, like the army boots and a tank top. I mean, she looked hot as hell. Obviously I'm, I'm a big fan of hers as well. To your point earlier, nineties hot, like super nineties. hot. Yeah, yeah. But even still hot. I mean, well, yeah, it's a bummer because like that, <laughs> that fashion is something you and I like would still dig, but it's so like, Nowadays she'd be in, you know, yoga pants or Lululemon, yeah. you know what I mean? But, but it, it was so stunning, uh, to see a female artist come out like a baggy t-shirt and shorts. You know, I mean, cool. I'd be, I'd be fine with Alanis and yoga pants too. I mean, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's completely fine. But no, um, and it was an awesome show and she, you know, she was kind of, you know, she was rugged. She was great. She was stomping around the stage and, you know, kind of had a, um, emotional, she wasn't angry. It wasn't like a, like some of those artists that came along like Fiona Apple. And it was like, they were just like projecting this like faux angriness thing. It was really actually pretty annoying. Alanis was able to capture some of that emotion around like relationship bitterness and some of these things that you got from her lyrical content, but not in a phony way. It was a very authentic thing, you know, and, and seeing her live back then brought that home. You know, it was like, you didn't feel like you were seeing some sort of like phony produced artist. You felt like you were seeing her up there in a very authentic raw way doing what she does. And that was awesome. The second time I saw her was probably like 10 years ago up here in Ann Arbor. It was at a um, sort of smaller theater. And my, she was my girlfriend at the time. Now she's my wife. So we decided, you know, before the Alanis Morissette concert that we were going to go to a nearby pub to, you know, get ready for the show a little bit, nothing crazy, just, you know, just a couple of pops. And this was sort of like the beginning of the sort of craft beer thing. And there was all this terminology, all this crap. And, you know, I just like wanted a couple beers. Right. So, uh, so I saw something on the menu that looked good and it was called, um, um, 120 IPA. And I was like, was it right. like dogfish head or something? Dogfish head. Something yep. like that. Yeah. Yep. yeah. It was by yeah. dogfish head and it was a, a 120 IPA. And I was like, okay, that's 
sounds fine. I didn't know what the hell 120 meant. And so, and, and there was no, like now they're putting like the alcohol percentage sort of more prominently, but at this time they weren't. So I was like, ah, you know, I'll have a couple of French fries and then I'll just pound a couple beers and we'll go from there. So, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of time. We were going to be late for the show. We had like a half hour. So I just pounded two of these 120s and like nobody was kind enough to tell me that these are like 18% alcohol or something. Right. (laughs) Right. So I just think I'm getting a little like two beer kind of buzz. I mean, we got to the show and and we sat down in like, seriously, like I looked up and there were like three Alanises on stage. You're like seeing stars. I I was like, what is going (laughs) on? And I even tapped Kim. I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like I'm shit faced. Like I was like, did you roofie me? Like what, what's, (laughs) what's going on here? Like I was, I was wasted off of two beers and I was actually starting to get, you know, cause I can, I can hold my booze fairly well, but I was getting worried. It was like, what is going on with me? So, uh, I learned later, I think I told somebody about it. They're like, well, you idiot, 120 IPA means blah, blah, blah. So, um, so I, I remember the show, Pretty well, but I was, I was definitely a bit more wobbly than I had planned on being for that. But, uh, but she came out and did some of the old stuff. Uh, mostly she was doing some new stuff at the time, but she still sounded great and still looked great. And it was a, it was a fun show, even though I uh, made a very poor, uh, beer decision beforehand, uh, apparently. And the last thing I'm going to mention is, is I, I have a collection of rather weird t-shirts that I wear. Like you can see now on zoom right now, I'm wearing my rad t-shirt, which is the movie rad, the, the BMX film from the eighties, you know, crew Jones and the Reynolds twins and all those guys. Um, I have a shirt that, that has the uh, logo for Barth's burgery and you know, Barth's burgery. I do. Yeah. I know where you're going with this. So part of what I, part of why I wear this is I want to see, you know, sometimes you wear shirts wanting to see who, gets it who gets the reference or the you know whatever so barth's burger is obviously from you can't do that on television you know the 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 chef the dirty like gross (laughs) chef who uh you know served like worms and is the whole thing you know you can't do that on television was amazing and uh so i wear this shirt and and from time to time people will know it they'll be like yeah i remember that show whatever and you can surprise a lot of people by saying you know what famous artist was originally on you can't do that on television and the answer is alanis morissette so you know i got a little uh little t-shirt that can be a little conversation starter if you wish including tonight's uh artist who cut her teeth on that wonderful weird crazy canadian kids show you can't do that on television so anyway those are a few things that come to mind for me when it comes to our girl, Alana. So that's my wonder story. What do you got? Now? I'm glad you mentioned uh, you can't do that on television. We're, we're lucky to be from the Northern part of the U S. And so that show was extremely popular for us growing up. And anybody who can get an intro to Canadian humor early is going to have a good sense of humor. Yeah. I mean, there, there is such a culture to humor in Canada. That's very cool. And that show certainly captures it in this sort of, you know, kid type of show environment, which is cool. So yeah, very similar to yours in a lot of ways. I mean, first and foremost, really glad that I saw Alanis Morissette in her prime, you know, because one thing you'll find if you follow her career is she was never quite the same after Jagged Little Pill. And to her credit, she's 
done a pretty good job of setting herself up for a long-term career in music. I mean, she's certainly not like a one and done. The follow-up album, which is an important part of the Jagged Little Pill story, it did well. You know, it won some awards and sold well. It, it certainly did not have the stratospheric success that Jagged Little Pill had, but she was never quite the same after this experience. And so for us to see her in that stomping around in army boots kind of prime is something to be treasured. And T, if you remember, we also saw her at Pine Knob Music Theater. Do you remember who opened that show? Uh, and remember, this is 1996 when we saw her. Uh, was it Blind Melon? <laughs> no, no. But we did see Blind Melon with, with Neil Young and Sound. Neil Young, yeah. You, you're you're gonna you're not gonna believe it. I mean, you're gonna be like, oh yeah. But it's so crazy to think about this. But the opener to our Alanis Morissette show was Radiohead. Oh, really? To ring the bends. <laughs> yep. Oh, really? Did did we see them? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, must not have been that memorable for me. Well, it, it's like seeing all. a different band. You know, I mean, we we did end up seeing Radiohead and OK Computer, but this is on the Benz and right. they were like a rock band. I mean, yeah, they, were, they weren't they weren't darlings yet, were they? No, they were a UK rock band in the vein of Blur and Oasis and things like that. And they were really, really good. I remember them getting a tremendous reaction from the crowd. But, you know. You know, I think the key with Alanis, anyone who discovered her, you ought to know on the radio was a huge thing. We talked about 89X, an incredibly important part of our upbringing musically, an alternative rock station in Detroit that actually was out of Windsor, Canada. And they just played the hell out of that song. And hearing it was really stunning for the first time. You know, on the Nirvana episode, we talked about hearing Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time. Well, hearing you ought to know for the first time was a little different vibe, but the same idea. It was stunning. It was something that you really paid attention to. And I think for me, T, in, in agreeing with kind of all your elements, although it was not an ex-girlfriend that brought it to the forefront for me, but Alanis did bring out something that was really important in my teenage years. It, there, was a certain, there was a certain feminine energy that just was not there before it, musically. And, and there was something about that feminine energy that was really inspiring. It was different. And for me, it brought out something really unique and I would say really lasting. There was a, a sensitivity to her heaviness that was really captivating, but lasted a long time. I mean, I listened to this album a lot, top to bottom, and was just always so impressed with her authenticity and kind of like what Glenn Ballard said and, and what she said about Glenn Ballard, which is just bringing out this freedom, you know, this ability to express herself. I still find really inspiring. And in rediscovering this album, you know, we won't see that again because now the biggest pop stars in the world, for the most part, are female. But that wasn't really the case in the 80s and 90s. And uh, she brought something to the table that was so singular and so unique and, and really will never happen again. So let's take ourselves back here and let's drop the needle and go trek by trek as we drop the needle on Jagged Little Pill. Pretty quintessential 90s intro when you look at the opening track on Jagged Little Pill with All I Really Want. Do I stress you out? My sweater is on backwards. 
person inside out and you say how appropriate. You know she plays harmonica, though. You know that, right? <laughs> I kind of love the like when Alanis busts out the harmonica on Jag a little bit, like because uh, not that I'm a harmonica player, because I'm not. I just fake it while we play our acoustic shows on a few songs. But I can say that um, the harmonica playing isn't terribly intricate. I mean, she's no John Popper. Let's put it that way. But it's cool. You know, it's cool. I like, I like when she, she brings it out in three or four songs on this. And uh, yeah, I always like when she busts, you know, she just like just flies in and busts out the harmonica. I think it, <laughs> I, don't, I think it kind of rules. I agree. I agree. This was the last single on the album. So T, I got to tell you with the, the trademark introduction of this song and something that I think most are familiar with, I think it gives us a chance to hit the old post. What do you think? It's about 18 seconds long. So oh, it's not sure. Super long, but I think we can hit the post here. So I, I'm sure. Sure. Now, what I want us to do, though, we're in the mid 90s. We're radio DJs and we need to hit the post with some sort of 90s reference. So I'll get us started here. Mm. Hey, we're coming at you here on a Friday. WJLP. Boy, what's going on in the world right now? We got President Clinton. Now, I wonder what all he really wants. What can you imagine what that guy wants? Hey, Summer Olympics coming up here in Atlanta. Hopefully, there's some gold medals out there for the old US of A, right? Hopefully so. Here's some Atlantis. Oh, you missed the post. You, you stepped right on it. You stepped right on it. Did I step on it? Ah, shoot. I thought maybe you were going to throw down like a Canadian accent, you know, just to really. <laughs> Really bring it home, you know. Well, you know, here we go with some land, you know. Uh, Absolutely. Well, let's see if you can hit the postie. I also like how, like, the first thing you hear on this song is just the, like, little, like, like little, it sounds like a harmonica, like the harmonica's in her mouth and she didn't know it, you know. It, it's not the most dynamic intro ever. It certainly <laughs> is memorable. But it's, yeah, it's memorable and iconic and cool. Okay, here we go. What's up? Yeah, yeah. Hey, I wanted to let you know before we get into this one that there's a 20% off at Pacific Sunwear. Wallet chains are buy one, get one free. Yeah. Don't forget, we got a new episode of Friends coming out tonight, and uh, we know you like that one. Here's Alanis. <laughs> Listen, you get an A-plus for 90s references, but neither one of us hit the post. Yeah, I was trying, you know, trying to jam a little too much in there. but So uh, much to get. I like the Pacific Summer. I like the Friends. It was good. <laughs> Both of us, I think, get, get strong marks on references. Neither one of us hit the post. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. What do you think of All I Really Want? Uh, great opener. Great opener. I think it, you know, it nicely, you know, kind of frames up all of the strength and production, strength and instrumentation, some really good vocal performances, which you really get throughout the entire album. I think it's a, it's an opener that sets the table perfectly of what you're going to get. You know, it's not too hard of a song, but it's driving. It's not too soft of a song, but it's something that kind of eases you into it. Um, the middle's great. You know, there's a lot of great middle sections on this record and this is one of them. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a very, very ideal opener. And, and to your point about the intro, it's like you hear that intro and, and you're right back at that time in a cool, in a cool way, not in a like dumb way or in an outdated way. And all I really want kicks it off really well. You like that. Let's talk about life for a while. <laughs> that was the moment where I was like, Ooh, this this chick is serious. You know? Yeah, she she really digs in uh, quite a few moments on this record, but yeah, that's one of them. 
No doubt about it. So yeah, I, I agree. I think it kicks it off right. And uh, you know, it gave radio DJs a chance to hit the old posts. But really, when you think about radio, I mean, it is track two that that dominated the airwaves for a period of time and certainly elevated Jagged Little Pill to the status it has today. And that is a track that Alanis will, to this day, say is very misunderstood, though I think that's kind of not true. But that is, of course, you ought to know. All right, T, let's talk about You Ought to Know. So this is one of those songs that we're going to ask the question for many of these. How did it age? And I'm sure there's a lot of differing opinions on this. Elena swears this is not an angry song. I'm going to call a little BS on that. You know, I, th- I think in retrospect, she's been able to say, oh, this song's so misunderstood. It's, it's really about sadness, not anger. And I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. But T, let's ask the question here and there on this album. How does You Ought to Know age? So are we really, we're really going to talk about you ought to know without talking about uncle Joey. <laughs> now, um, has that been confirmed? Is that, is it a hundred percent confirmed? Well, um, I know that's the urban myth. So the, the urban myth here is that this song is about Dave Coulier, um, uncle Joey in, um, full house. And, uh, she hasn't exactly flat denied it. So I think there's only one conclusion that can be drawn here. And that is that Dave Coulier must've been you know, bringing it nicely. I mean, get, get Alanis this pissed off and fired up. I mean, <laughs> goodness. So I think we should just stick with it. Cause it is, uh, I mean, if either way, it's funny. If she, if she wrote a like F you breakup song about Dave Coulier, that's pretty amazing. So I'm going to stick with it, whether it's true or not. I think it's aged. uh, Okay. You know, I mean, it's a little bit of an anthem. It's one of those that probably um, will be around um, for a very, very long time, regardless of how the sort of uh, intricacies and mechanics of the song age uh, on its face. I'm, you know, I think that two, uh, you know, 41 year old uh, males probably aren't the right ones to necessarily say, because I do think this is a little bit of a female empowerment anthem. I think that was part of its appeal back then. And I think it's part of its appeal now. So this will be the type of song where, you know, when my uh, daughter turns, you know, like 12 or 13, I'll be playing you ought to know for her and being like, what do you think of this? And it'll be interesting to see if it's kind of goofy or if it's, you know, something that like, gets her head banging a little bit or, or gets her uh, some of that teen angst coming out, which I'm sure will be happening anyway uh, at that time. But yeah, it'll be one of those songs that I think is pretty anthemic and, and, uh, and will be interesting to see how, you know, kind of these next generations of, uh, of really, you know, I mean, we were 14 when this record came out. So I would say, you know, right around that age, we'll see what kind of the next generation thinks of a song like this, but a song like this was tremendously important. Uh, back in our day. I suppose based on your feedback, it, it might make it a little awkward now me saying that myself, 41 year old dude has really spent the last couple of days driving around playing this song at pretty much maximum volume, just loving it. Maybe even more so than I did back in the day. And there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, the bass line. And you, you hear the bass and you're like, oh, that is not 
a normal session musician. Well, it's true. It's Flea. So Flea's playing bass on this. And that bass line is, is insane. If you just really isolate the bass and the verses and yeah, Flea's bass line is very important to the song. Alanis sings her heart out on this track and you can get the full extent of Alanis. You get kind of the parodied side of her voice and her vocal kind of style, you know, kind of the, the really high stuff and, and some of the, the vibrato and some of the things that she does that, that seem to come pretty naturally. But I mean, she is just letting it fly on this song. And I really like that. I think it gives the song a raw emotion that isn't stuck in the nineties. I think it ages very well. Guitar wise, uh, Dave Navarro is playing guitar on this song. So that gives it a little bit of an edge as well. And I think, it, I think the song builds nicely. Glenn Ballard is kind of a master of building, you know, the first chorus is pretty thin and then they add a layer. And by the end, you've got that high guitar that slides in. But again, I, I think the key is just Alanis's vocal. I mean, she's just totally unabashed. She's she's very free and just letting it go in a way that I don't think modern female artists really can do. And that gave it a place in 1995, but I think it gives it a place in 2021. I mean, I've really enjoyed getting back into this song. There's two aspects of the chorus that just really, I think, are incredible. One is the the whole line about and the mess you left when you went away. I mean, there was something so soulful about when she sings that line. And then I love the way the song ends and the way the choruses end, which is her by herself just saying, you ought to know. Yeah. And then it just sits. There's like this pause, you know, it's just, it's so powerful. I just think it's such great production. Yeah. I mean, it is. And that's, those are the type of elements where they were able to capture this emotion and capture this angst without it being overly dramatic or over the top or annoying. And they were pretty masterful about that. All right. Track three, we definitely seem to take it down a notch with what I got to admit, my least favorite song on the, on the album, which is the seemingly never moving perfect. There's a contradiction in the song that doesn't work and that Alanis is singing this like it's you ought to know, but it's really this very kind of softer, more gentle approach to the instrumentation. I mean, Glenn Ballard's sort of strumming the guitar and it, it's, it's very light, but she's singing it with that raw edge that we've already heard in the album. I, I just don't think this song works at all. I remember as a kid waiting for this song to go somewhere because the nice part about Jagged Little Pill is that every song seems to have a section in it that elevates or goes somewhere. You mentioned earlier the middle sections, but this is one track that just really, to me, just doesn't do a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe they they felt like they had to kind of, with all the peaks, they had to create a little bit of a valley. And, you know, this could have been one. I mean, the lyrics are really interesting, um, but... Yeah, I think the song's pretty dull. It, it was always kind of an easy flip for me, especially, you know, when you consider what comes next. The single train continues with track four, Hand in My Pocket. So that one's flicking a cigarette. I, I, I love all the different 
things she's doing with the one hand in her pocket, you know, it's hailing a taxi cab or giving a high five. Like there's like these different things, but, uh, I, I always hand in my pocket aged tea for you. Oh, great. I, I love this song. This is just one of those that it pops on in the radio and I'm turning it up and I'm listening to the whole thing. And you know, the track four placements really interesting. You know, there's some interesting sequencing things on this one. And, you know, you're coming off of perfect and it almost kind of feels like, you know, they knew that was going to be a little bit of a deep cut and just wanted to get you right back on something that I'm sure they knew was going to be a single. The thing I love about this song is it has an identity start to finish. This song knows exactly what it's trying to do and it's not trying to do too much. It's kind of a nice beat that's really consistent. Uh, There's a kind of guitar part that just sort of guides you through it. It's got that harmonica at the end. Go Alanis with the harmonica. Love it. Um, But I just like how this song never tried to do too much. It's just a simple, really, really good, great vocal as you get all throughout this entire thing. But I think it's certainly a high point of the album. I love Hand in My Pocket. That's cool to hear because actually I I think this one hasn't aged as well. I remember live, especially at our show, she played this sort of lazy version of this. I don't know if you recall, but like not to get overly drummer-ish, but Taylor Hawkins, who's, you know, exceptional drummer, was sort of laying back and playing this lazy groove to this song. And she was singing over the top of it. It You know what? I I hated it too. I I thought. And it's not a song that's going to translate well live. The only way this would translate well live is if they used a backtrack because that drum beat is obviously very electronic and very processed. Um, And trying to recreate that with live drums is going to be impossible. So I agree with you. They always kind of, she always kind of tinkered with this one. Couldn't ever really figure out how to do it live. And I never really liked any of the live versions of it, but this is a complete, it's a great point you make. It's a complete studio song, but it's a good one. It's kind of like what we talked about on the Phil Collins episode with In the Air Tonight. You know, the, the relentlessness of a drum machine is really important. And no human being in their right mind is going to follow that. Taylor Hawkins is one of the busiest drummers in the world. He's not going to play it like how it is on the album. And so, yeah, I, I think live, it just, there, you're right. There was never kind of a good composition no it's a total studio song even the bass the instrumentation i mean all that is pretty much impossible to recreate um but you know i like what they did for sure so track five one of the two true album tracks that really rock and the first one of those is right through you Maestro, I knew you were going to choose that clip. I just knew it. I mean, you know, uh, would you, would you, would you think uh, anything less? Uh, I, I love when she says that. <laughs> that that was a that was a must. That was a must. You know, this album was chosen on the Rolling Stone Top 500 list. This album was chosen number 69. Isn't it ironic, T? Don't you think? Yeah, well played, well played. I think right through you is one of the two true jams on the album. Again, Alanis really singing with a tremendous amount of force. The other, aside from what you chose, the other one I love is the, now, hello, Mr. Man. You know, 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hello, Mr. Man's pretty Soul awesome. Lannis, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you ought to know, got so much attention for kind of the, you know, the anger or whatever people say, but right through you to me, there's a certain outburst to this song and again, dynamics. I mean, Glenn Ballard is really playing with the, the soft, loud thing that's going back and forth. I think the song jams. I mean, I think this one age, has aged well. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely sounds nineties. There's no question about that on this one it, where I would say hand in my pocket could be a festival rock song. I mean, the, the studio version, I think that one holds up really, really well to today's sort of like alt nation sound. This one right through you screams nineties, but in a good way, in a good way. I always really liked this one. I always was kind of like, you know, this is a rocker. Um, I think they, they, they just got all the treatments right, you know, in order to make the sort of energy of the song come through. But yeah, this is one I distinctly remember. Uh, obviously it's a bit more of a deep cut, but hearing it and saying this album might be special, you know, for sure. And, and the sequencing on this album is not perfect, but this is a great track five, you know, really ideal track five when you think about where it falls with the others. So the last song on side one, if you think about a vinyl, I don't think this album got a, a an original vinyl release. But... <laughs> I don't think anyone thinks about this on vinyl except <laughs> yeah, for you. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. The track six uh, is Forgiven. Forgiven to me does what Perfect didn't do, which is it finds this elevated thing. Good job, Maestro, as always, on the clip, because that that chorus really takes things up a notch. But this, you know, starts quiet and then it gets louder. And then by the time she gets to that section, she's really belting it out in that high register. But I think Forgiven works for its dynamics. It's not the greatest composition in the world. I mean, this song is not catchy and it wasn't a single by any means, but she can sing all three of those levels really well. Yeah, I, I think it's fine. Uh, you know, it's a, I don't know if this one, was this like a minor single um, or was this pretty much deep cut? It wasn't released as one, but you got to remember yeah. the deep cuts on this album were so famous that. Yeah, yeah, they, know, they were. And I think this is one that was probably, uh, as far as the non-singles, a little bit more well-known, but I like how it builds. I like the performance. It's a nice composition, especially that part where she kind of walks it upward. It's a, it's a good song. See, I can't wait to talk about You Live, You Learn. So rediscovering this album was a, you know, a lesson in nostalgia. And, and it, like we already talked about, it took us back to a place. But I, I just, I got to be up front with you, T, and, you know, call me whatever. But like I said, Alanis brought out some sensitivity in me at 15 and, you know, 41. I can find that again. This song, rediscovering this song has, I mean, this song is really moving. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I can't explain it, T, but. When I've been listening to this song this week, it has really taken me to a place. I mean, there there is the composition of this song and the lyrical content and everything involved with it is it it's it's an amazing song. It's yeah. very, very emotional. And I can honestly tell you that I, you know, this has kind of been a goosebump song for me in the yeah. last few days. I see that. I mean, it's beautiful. It really is. And in, in the again, just 
everything on this record's treated almost perfectly, right? The vocal harmonies, uh, the the layering, the, this middle section that we kind of came out of um, during the clip there is is uh, dynamic and and powerful. Now, again, I don't know how great you can recreate that stuff. There are a lot of studio tricks on this record. This is not this is not a raw you know, lowly produced. This is a very, very, very highly produced record. Um, but again, in an authentic way and in a good way. Uh, but yeah, I think you learns great. It was one that I always really liked, has a lot of feeling to it. And, uh, now this was a single, this was a pretty, pretty decent hit. Um, but even before it kind of broke through, you know, you hear it and you'd go, wow, this record's really good. And, and this is, this thing's going to explode and it sure did. I think this song probably has aged the best out of the whole album. I'm going to assign it with the Dolly Willie role. I, I really believe just the, the writing of this song and the composition of it. I think anybody could do you learn and pull it off very, very well. When you think about Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson doing their own versions of this, you know, Dolly could totally pull off, you know, the you live, you learn, you know, kind of thing. And of course, Willie, you know, just you live. You learn, you bleed. <laughs> I mean, I could totally see it. I mean, I want. Why do? You, how do you think Dolly Willie rule applies to you learn? Uh, her vocal is pretty important to this. I mean, it's because if you if you take that away, you're really just dealing with a very. It's a very basic progression. You know, um, it's it's a very simple basic pop progression. So, what really makes it special, you know, I think is the way her vocals pop. So. I don't know. Dolly would really have to reach back and, and Willie, Willie definitely couldn't be as high as he usually is. He'd have to really, <laughs> I think, get the energy up to, to pull this one off. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm halfway there with you on that one. Let's see how the other single and yet another hit has aged for you with Head Over Feet. See, how has head over feet aged for you? Extremely poorly. Um, I, I've, I've never liked this one. I, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very elementary. I mean, this is the type of song that it, it sounds like a, like a 13 year old who just learned the basic chords on guitar, writing their first song in their basement. You know I mean? I, I think it's that with a lot of like kind of lushy production stuff to try and bulk it up a little bit. I think it's boring. Um, you know, I think it's a little sappy. It, it is, it is, it is, I think easily the, the low point of the record. Now, you know, I understand why it was a hit and I think people, I think it was important for Alanis to show a little bit of a soft side on this record. Otherwise it, you know, would maybe come in a little too hot. Um, and she, you know, she was, in a lot of ways, um, you know, a, a pretty sensitive artist. So you didn't want to like portray her too much as like the angry girl. So I think it was important um, that this song kind of helped offset, you know, the vibe that you get from you ought to know. And, and I don't know, ironically, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. So, you know, I think it, it was important for the record that this was a big hit, but I've always heavily disliked uh, Head Over Feet. I think it's a song that wasn't very good then and and I think is aged uh very poorly. So 
This was far and away my least favorite of the singles in 1995. And in 2021, it is still my least favorite of all the singles. I just, I'm with you hundred percent. I think you nailed it. Simple is good until you're simple and bad. Right. And this is right. just sort of simple and bad. And yeah. even the melody, you know, there's a lot of really extraordinary melodies on this album where if you isolated them, you'd be like, wow, that's pretty incredible. The melody is incredibly dull. Oh yeah. I mean, I, honestly, it's, it's the type of song I, you know, I, I would think you'd hear at like a junior high school talent show, you know, somebody's original song. Um, it, it just, yeah, it's, you may, you, you said it perfectly. Sometimes simple is good. In this case, simple is really bad. Aged poorly. Unlike T who's aged beautifully. Oh yeah. Well, I didn't say it. That's what everyone else says. So, <laughs> all right. From head over feet, we get into a little Mary Jane. All right. Mary Jane music references go. You got Rick James with Mary Jane and the Mary Jane girls, right? You've got Tom Petty last dance with Mary Jane. In every case, I'm always thinking when I hear Mary Jane, I, I just, I hear weed, right? That's just, that's a <laughs> reference that I'm thinking when I hear it. I don't think that's what's going on here. Well, when I hear Mary Jane's last dance, I think of Tom Petty dancing with a dead Kim Bassinger, like weekend at Bernie's style. I mean, what a, what a fucked up video. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness. Even if you watch, even if you watch it now, it's like, man, they showed this like, oh my goodness. But yeah. But what an outstanding song, you know, it's right. Petty yeah. was, Petty was sort of in a bad place, you know, there for a while in the nineties. And then he, he puts out wildflowers and then Mary Jane's last dance is like, holy smoke. And yeah. then he followed it up with complete junk for like the next, you know, 20 years. But <laughs> well, you know, and a lot of that had to do with your favorite backing band in mind, the Heartbreakers. Right? Oh, oh, I hate the Heartbreakers. <laughs> the Heartbreakers are as boring as head over feet. <laughs> uh, Mary Jane, I think, has a, a really interesting vocal line. It's draggy. And it's an album track, but I like hearing her sing it. Oh, know? she sings the hell out of it. Yeah. It's a, it's a tremendous vocal, but really it suits one purpose. And that is to set up what, what truly became the ultimate hit on the album. It was not, you ought to know. It was ironic. See, we're going to get to how ironic age, but it's time for a little duet. Come on. Give us a little ironic karaoke. Come on. You and I together. Let's do Oh, this. man. Come really? on. <laughs> Come on, man. Let's go. And as the plane crashed down, he thought, well, isn't this nice? And isn't it ironic? Like, don't you think? All right, T, let's go. It's like, Ray, yeah. Wedding, 
Who would have thought it begins? Oh, so bad. Thinking about it, and then is the things okay? And then the right down the right. Yeah, man. The ironic do what? Come on, T. Of helping you out when you think that everything don't get another blows up in your wing, your face. <laughs> oh, Mr. Was... Mr. Play it safe. That was no. god awful. That was god awful. Now, what is your favorite? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, lyrical goodies in here, right? What always stands out to you as the, the ironic line that you either find yourself singing or appreciating or just. What, what meant something to you in 1995? Like, what stands out? Everyone's got an ironic line, I think, that they like. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think for me, it's those damn 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. I mean, that's... It's a pretty good that's, one. That's tough. It's a it's pretty like, good one. I don't know if it's ironic when that happens. It's just annoying. It's just a pain in the butt. You know, you got to find a knife. You know, maybe go in the dishwasher. You know, maybe that's where they all are. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's... That's kind of what's hilarious about this is um, the things she's mentioning are more, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, coincidental than they are ironic in the true sense of the word, which kind of makes it funny. But uh, yeah, I'm going with 10,000 spoons. How about you, buddy? You know, mine comes right after. I, I always thought, I think it was just the way that she sang it. And again, tapping into this sort of feminine energy. I, I did love the idea of it's meeting the man of my dreams and then meeting his beautiful wife. I yeah. just. I thought she sang it with a lot of character and, and I, I, you know, it, it is catchy too. I mean, it was a very catchy thing, but, and it set up that, that kind of last chorus very well. So T, you know, maybe more than any other song in this album, I'm curious, how is ironic held up for you? I, oh, yeah. re- really good. I, it's a, it's a magnificent song and, and one that um, is perfectly produced. I mean, the vocal harmonies, the, the beat, everything down to sort of the electronic kick drum. It all works. You know, it just all works. It's a song I'll probably never get sick of. Um, I mean, it was. Which played. says a lot because this song was played to death. It sure does. On it FM sh- radio in the 90s. It, it sure does, man. I mean, this is one that, it, you know, maybe of all songs in the 90s, every single song would probably be one of the top candidates that you'd be sick of. But I think it's so good that I don't know if I'll ever get sick of it. and. It's just one of those songs. It's it's sort of a just a magical combination. Everything is put together perfectly. So if each song is a puzzle of vocal performance, composition, instrumentation, lyrics, um, production, and you got to make everything work, um, I, you know, I think that part of the reason why Ironic was as um breakthrough and as sort of legendary of a 90s song as it has been and probably always will be is truly because all those things work so perfectly and it's one of those songs that i think has deserved its place and it's listen it's not some raw like go out there and jam it It, you know this was written in a garage i mean it ain't that it's very produced very, very produced. Oh yeah. yeah. Pretty calculated, but man, does it work. And uh, yeah, I think it deserves all the accolades it gets. Elena swears that Jagged Little Pill was most successful because they were not trying to be successful. And to extent with her, I agree. Not unironic. I mean, th- this is like so polished and so radio ready and 
it's such a hit in the making. If Glenn Ballard didn't know this was going to be a smash hit when he wrote it, then he doesn't have the same set of ears that most do. I mean, this song is so tailor made for uh, the charts in the nineties. Yeah. The the other thing too, you, you have to acknowledge is the video, you know, and we don't talk a lot about videos on two twins in an album because we're really focused on the album, but the video for this song was (laughs) such a huge part of its identity. You know, it was, it was and and this was one I, I heard well before it was her next big hit. And, you know, it's toward the end of the album. You're kind of plowing through it. And I remember it came on and it was just, it was like, holy moly, like this, just wait for this one to pop, you know, and it sure did. You better not stop the album there though, because T visiting hours are nine to five and I'm not the doctor. There's a little magic in the verses, you know, there's something going on there, but I, I don't know, you know, talk about how this song aged. There is something about the way she sings visiting hours are nine to five, but if I show up at 10 past six, will I, that is just, it's like so infectious. It's a great marriage of words and melody and rhythm. And I don't know, maybe it's not as effective for you, but there, there was something about that, that struck a chord with, with me at 15 and still resonates it, it it it's like a perfect you know combination of all the elements of music at once yeah and they and they found that a lot right i mean that's part of the beauty of this album is is again it's the puzzle it's making all these pieces work and fit together really nicely it's a it's a great tune it's a great tune and and boy you get through ironic and you're like wow that's certainly the high point i'm not sure if not the doctor's as good but damn it it's pretty close you know it's it's pretty close as far as um you know, and again, this is what makes albums special is you'd think that after a song like Ironic, it's like, okay, we can just throw in some deep cuts for the next three. And, you know, boy, they follow it up here on track 11 as we get toward the end with something that's really strong. Kind of a heat check, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great way to put it. It, it. it is kind of a heat check. You know, she's, she's sort of buried a couple of threes uh, from the corner. And then decides to try one at NBA range from the wing, you know, just to see if, uh, if, if the shots are falling and, uh, yeah, I think, I think she, I think she did it. I think she hit it probably held the follow through for a few extra seconds too there. I got to admit to you, I, I, I put this in the same, truly the same category as right through you. And for a long period of time, I actually confused these two songs. And when you were listening on a cassette tape or even on a CD, you might lose track of where you're at. And I, those two songs both connected with me, but I could never quite find them in the sequence. I actually got them confused with each other from time to time. Cause they're both kind of the album tracks that rock, you know, earlier I mentioned during right yeah. through you that there was two, this to me is the second one true album yeah. track, but a song that, that really kind of jams. One of the reasons she's not as you know great now as she used to be, she doesn't really rock anymore. You know, she's kind of gotten more into this smoother thing. You got to respect the direction she's taken as an artist again, very genuine, very authentic, but not quite Raleigh rocking out like she used to. Well, you know what she did, T? She aged. And and not yeah. everyone can age quite the same as T. No. You know, not everyone no. can stay 25 forever. Yeah, very, very well, very few, I would say, Ken. But uh, you know, listen, some of us got it and uh most of us don't. <laughs> Let's see if the close of Jagged Little Pill has got it with the closing wake up. 
Kind of a driving closer there. It's certainly not single worthy by any means, but it builds momentum. It never quite gets to the place I wanted it to get back in the day. I remember thinking the album closer was smooth and growing, but man, it would have been great if at the end it just exploded. But if there's one thing about Glenn Ballard's songwriting and production, it was very bottled. You know, it never quite, there were dynamics within it, of course. And we've heard a ton of them through the album, but, but man, it would have been great if it really just kind of had this huge kind of firework at the end. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of okay. And you know, I mean, shoot, after what you've been through, having, having something with this kind of tone and this kind of mood, close it up, makes sense. But, you know, I think all in all, it's kind of an okay song. I do like the way it ends up. What we just listened to is the very end of the album. Music cuts and she just throws down Wake Up, you know, acapella, and that's it. Album over. So, you know, I think it's kind of cool the way they did that. Um, I think it's wrapped up in a bow, probably the way it should be. But yeah, but not my favorite on the record. Album over. So that means it is time for us to do our analysis here, too. So let's start with our final analysis of Jagged Little Pill. T, does this album matter? Matters a ton. Uh, paved the way tremendously for a lot of artists that would follow, female artists in particular, that would follow throughout the remainder of the 90s and even into the 2000s. And I even think there's plenty going on currently that can be credited back to Alanis and credited back to Glenn Ballard and credited back to just the entire package of this record. You know, this was one that was very produced, very, very produced, but they were able to find, and this was so 90s when you were able to kind of strike this chord, they were able to find the perfect balance between commercial and authentic, you know, and, you know, it was still pretty early in the decade, but you were starting to get a sense that things were moving in a more produced direction, right? Where that raw grunge thing was already starting to level off a little bit. And I do think that this album in some ways signaled that um, because you saw the onset of, you know, more artists that went sort of in this more production heavy direction and then boy bands came and all those kinds of things and, and girl bands with Spice Girls and all that. So, you know, I do think that it changed the direction a little bit, um, which made it a very pivotal record during this time of showing that you could capture the angst and attitude of the time while also doing so in a very commercial and a very produced way. And, and I think it signaled to the industry and to kind of the creative force of music as a whole that this was a possibility. You know, you didn't need to be just blaring guitars and blaring kind of this minimalist grunge projection that you were seeing most of the kind of success coming from at the time. So yeah, it was, it was very pivotal, very important very influential. And it was one of those things where, I mean, I keep kind of mentioning it, but you know, the pieces just fit together perfectly. They made everything work and Ballard deserves a lot of credit for that. But I'll tell you what, without the performance coming from Alanis here, that's very rugged, very raw, very authentic and, and was able to tiptoe to that line of being commercially produced and Boy, they probably knew they had a big one when they finished it, whether Alanis admits it or not, but they were able to do it in a very authentic and real way. And I think that's why she was so well accepted by the masses. Um, You don't sell 16 million records in the U.S. unless you've got mass appeal. And I think this was one of those records that after several years where some people like Nirvana, some people didn't, some people like Pearl Jam, some people didn't, you know, there, there were kind of these bands that, you know, 
some were into some were this was one where you know men women kids <laughs> teenagers ev- everybody saw appeal in this and that made the record tremendously important what do you think now i think it matters most because it it truly to me marks the end of an era in the sense of something so organic so raw i mean it truly is mostly made up of demos of two people kind of sitting side by side working together collaborating and, you know, sold 16 million copies in the U.S. It'll never happen again. It, it's, an, it's the end of an era. Yet, T, how many spawned copycats did Jagged Little Pill have? You know, there were all these female artists that came along afterwards that tried to recreate it or tried to do what they did. And I think that trying is part of the undoing in what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s where kind of the corporate machine took over the creativity because they were trying to do it. I do believe Alanis when she says that her and Glenn Ballard were not trying to create an album that would be that successful. I do believe that. Make no mistake, it was on a major label, clearly had a couple commercial songs on it. Alanis may not have been, but I'm pretty damn sure Glenn was going <laughs> Right. <laughs> the negative consequence of this album mattering, which it surely does, is that I think it led to a lot of the commercialism that would, that would follow. Its legacy is a lot of strong songs and a really powerful female artist. Its legacy is also the spawn of all of these female wannabe copycats that didn't really work. So what that led to is the boy band thing and the Taylor Swift thing and sort of the thing, some of the elements that we still see today, Beyonce, like the female star having to be this larger than life figure that has this machine behind her. Versus a Canadian singer who was on, you can't do that on television, finding her voice with the help of a producer. And so I think it matters so much because it it really is the end of that era. Unfortunately, Jagged Little Pill is just as as responsible for the the boy band and girl band movement and the Christina Aguilera's and the, the Britney Spears and some of the things that came along because record labels saw the potential and and created it. As it is for kind of amazing songs created by this singular artist and somebody that she partnered with to, to create some really, you know, incredible work. So I, I see its legacy in an interesting place, but all of it contributes to an album that, that certainly matters. So, so with that T let's do the final cut. So is Jagged Little Pill for you T is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or are you going to place it in the, very sad and very dreaded for sale bin t where do you got jagged little pill collecting dust for me nub um you know it, it, you can't put in the for sale bin it's too important there's too many good tracks on it but you know I, I, much of it is aged well some of it hasn't you know there's no question about that there are peaks and valleys on the record um but you know too many peaks to possibly get rid of it but some of the uh you know kind of not aging as well uh leads to that but I think you got to hang on to it because uh, I want my daughter to hear it someday. You know, I want to see what kind of the next wave of, um, you know, teenage girls and boys, I would say, um, think of this one because it was incredibly influential, incredibly pivotal, very important. And it'll be interesting to see if that ages and translates um, so sort of the next wave. So I'm hanging on to it for that purpose, but for me, it's a dust collector. What do you got nub? I've got it in the collection. A lot of the same reasons 
there's elements of this team that have not aged well. You know, there just are. And there's a few tracks on here that were just duff ruse to begin with. But even a couple of hits that we talked about, I just, I think time has not done them well. And time has enhanced a couple of these songs. And we talked about those as well. But it's such a huge album. You know, it's such an important part of a collection. It's, if you think about the 1990s, if you really wanted to isolate the 90s to five recordings, five records, Jagged Little Pill has to be considered, if not kind of an automatic to be yeah. in there. So yeah, that's right. With, with all that considered, it's in the collection, but there, there's too many aging issues and even a few composition things to, to allow it from being on the turntable, you know, especially in 2021. And that's why the theme is so important. I mean, we, we weren't just looking at this album as 1995. We're really looking at it as, as a piece of art that's aged. And like most things, some has aged well, some has it. But I tell you what, that's not true with T. Every element of you has aged well, buddy. Every element. Well, except for my maturity. That's gone backwards. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, maybe that's stuck in 1995 a little bit. Yeah, too. that's <laughs> at best. Yeah. All right. Well, here's one thing that for sure is aged. And, uh, and that is the Cranberries. I would say over time. And let's hear the sweet sounds of Dolores. Well, Dolores is dead. So Dol- I mean, she, well, she is, <laughs> she is. But if you've gone back and listened to the cranberries, I mean, you talk about music that has an age ball. I mean, come on. I don't know T. <laughs> but let's check in with Dolores here as we uh, close up shop with a little, what is in your head? Dolores is our best drop, isn't it? I mean, come on. It's got to be <laughs> pretty strong. T, what's in your head? I've got uh, One Day as a Lion. Uh, we may have mentioned these guys briefly when we did the Mars Volta episode. This is John Theodore on drums and Zach De La Rocha on vocals. And they were supposed to put out a full length and it was supposed to be a whole thing. But they ended up really just doing, I think, a five song EP and then they just sort of fizzled. But it's really good. If, if you like Rage Against the Machine and you like John Theodore, then get after it because it's great. Um, the song is Ocean View, which is the second song on it. And it's, it's a heater. It's a real heater. And man, it showcases John Theodore's drumming extremely well because it's kind of hip hoppy. It's a lot of electronic uh, melodies and those type of things, progressions and those type of things with. De La Rocha doing his thing and Theodore just banging underneath it. It's, it's really good. A lot of good grooves on there. So ocean view by one day as a lion. The second is, uh, you know, we mentioned in the Q and a, uh, when we were talking about CNC music factory and black box and all that stuff, uh, we mentioned Millie Vanilli briefly and it was like, mm, I gotta get some of that going and girl, I'm going to miss you. Just a song that I absolutely love from those guys or whoever sang it. I guess the original, the original Millie Vanilli did a great job on that one. And the third is a uh, nice little sort of new wave throwback type tune, almost like a Gary Newman type feel to it by this band out of the UK called Late of the Pier. And the song is called Space and the Woods. Nubs, I think it's a song that you would particularly like. So why don't you jot that one down? Let me know if you like that one or not. And what's in your head, buddy? That one sounds right up my alley, T. Uh, the, the first is Discount Dogs, which is by the Joe Perry Project. You know, you and I collectively, not big Aerosmith guys, but I really like the Joe Perry Project albums. They're they're very obscure and it's like Aerosmith guitars, but without the annoyance of Steven Tyler. Discount Dogs (laughs) was one of the singles off one of those Joe Perry Project albums. So, uh, you know, been enjoying that. Kind of a good summer song. Next would be 
again, another good summer song. It previously mentioned coincidence for sure, which is uh, Madonna, her early stuff. Borderline is probably my favorite yeah. early Madonna song. I love great, Borderline. Great tune. We should, we should maybe do a top five Madonna at some point. I think we might have to. You know, let's well now that two twins in an album isn't such a sausage fest, maybe we can like, I don't know, do a Madonna album. <laughs> yeah, Although she doesn't really have any really good albums, but we maybe bro- we'll choose one of the terrible ones. We've broken the seal now. Yeah, exactly. And lastly would be uh, you know, the the psychedelic furs without the name psychedelic furs, which is of course Love Spit Love and the song Am I Wrong? Great one. Which I know is one you really like as well. T episode number 41 was pretty fun. Don't you think? <laughs> I do, man. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling a little less snossage so that's good. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, enjoyed the picking. Yeah, it was It was kind of fun. You know, it's, it had been a very long time since I had gone through this entire record. So getting a feel back for some of those deep cuts, which, you know, you remembered, but it had been a while since you really kind of paid attention to was, was uh, fun to do. So. You know, thanks for thanks for getting us out of that sausage party for crying out loud. Needed to. Desperately needed to, no doubt about it. So thanks for all your good takes as always, T. We want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to Two Twins in an album. Leave us comments, leave us feedback, make a request. Hopefully everybody can take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you soon. In fact, it will be next week, of course, for episode number 42 of Two Twins and an Album. Two That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.